I'm Faz Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. So, Faz, this week we are going to nerd out about digital advertising and politics. And I know that digital advertising can quickly make people's eyes glaze over because it can get very in the weeds. But it is really important when you step back and understand that every time a politician begs you for money, a huge chunk of that is going towards advertising. So if you want to understand politics and particular campaigns, you have to understand how this part of the industry works. And that's why we were excited to talk to Danielle Butterfield. She's the executive director of the country's largest Democratic super PAC, Priorities USA. And Amanda, you've known Danielle for a while, right? I have known Danielle Butterfield, or as I often call her, Butters Ford, more than a decade. We started on the same day on the Obama 2012 campaign. Um, She's an old friend, a colleague, and she manages now a massive, massive advertising budget. Priorities raised $258 million during the 2020 presidential campaign and spent upwards of $153 million in television, radio, and digital ads, along with doing a bunch of other litigation stuff and training work that was really important to the outcome of the election. Our conversation with Danielle gets pretty detailed. It's a great look into the inner workings of how the sausage gets made. But there's some interesting terms that come up that need defining. So let's start with some basic lingo here. We talk about PACs and super PACs. Faz, what are the differences? Well, a PAC is uh, you know, often regulated by specific contribution limits about how much you can give. A super PAC, on the other hand, uh, is most important because it doesn't adhere to these limits. It's an independent political action committee, raises unlimited sums from often corporations or wealthy donors, uh, unions, other individuals. So on the right, you see a lot of Karl Rove affiliated (laughs) groups having super PACs. And obviously in recent years, these super PACs, while independent, are often supported by leaders of the either Democratic or Republican Party. And that's how they help fundraise by their connections with said leaders. There's also a couple terms related here to how a super PAC can spend that money. And I want to make sure we all understand them. Can you talk through earned media, conversion-based advertising, and lookalike modeling and targeting? I know. Can you? (laughs) So earned media, or otherwise known as free media, is the media that you essentially earn from your campaign's efforts. So those campaign's efforts could be paid. You could run a TV ad and then find that that TV ad gets mentions on the Rachel Maddow show or Chris Hayes' show, and therefore uh, you've got derivative additional pickup that's earned media. Or you could just hold an event, right? And then you know press will come and report on it, and that would be earned media. That is the media that you're getting for free that you haven't necessarily paid for. Amanda, what is conversion-based advertising? Conversion-based advertising is an ad that asks you to do something. So this is in contrast to maybe persuasion or branding ads where it's just trying to get you to cultivate a feeling or an emotion about a candidate or campaign. Conversion-based ads might ask you to donate or to sign up or to follow a page on social media or to look up your polling place. Part of the genius of what the Trump campaign did, particularly in 2016, um, was they ran ads asking people to buy the hats or to buy merchandise. That was a way for them to both get people to sign up for their email list, to give them money, and also to create a point of conversion. And often in campaigns, one of the things we struggle with is there aren't really that many ways somebody can participate or can interact with the campaign. So buying merch for them was really powerful. Okay, next term, 
lookalike modeling. What does it mean? How do people do it? Yeah, so lookalike modeling is really born out of the fact that we'd love to have one-on-one conversations with all 300 million plus Americans. But we can't, uh, and we need to find ways to talk to them efficiently. So the way you do it is you try to find small batches of voters with commonalities with other larger sets of voters. So it might be everything from what kind of car you drive, what type of school you go to. And we'll take like the qualities and characteristics of a small group, and then we'll make judgments and assessments of how you might compare it to other people. And then we'll make scores based off of that. So, you know, for example, Amanda, if you have bought a Patagonia sweatshirt or you go to Whole Foods, it tends to be the case that a lot of those consumers are Democrats and will give you a score that suggests that you're highly likely to vote for a Democrat. And therefore, it would influence how much money we spent to pay to reach you via either direct mail or paid ads. And just to be super precise here, there are some tools within some of the social media apps, in particular Facebook, that allow you to upload a list and then find an audience that looks like that list. That's why it's often called a lookalike audience. Yeah. And Danielle refers to some privacy changes that will force campaigns to change how they target voters. What does she mean by that? Well, as far as I understand, there's a couple of different things going on here. But for many people who have like updated your iPhone, if you're an iPhone user, you may have been asked when you opened an app, do you want to allow this app to track your behavior? And that kind of tracking is one of the ways that we can target you. And there's a whole bunch of sort of cascading effects here, part of which is being driven by privacy laws changing in Europe and in California. Part of this is being driven by broader consumer behavior that is making it in short, really hard to target specific audiences, or we'll make it harder over the next couple of years to target specific audiences. And I think the unifying thread between a lot of what we're discussing here is that we have to make very intentional decisions on who to target and what to target them with. And some of those are based off data, some of those are based on gut instinct, some of those are based on past experience, and all of that is obviously an, a pretty biased perspective based on who's making that decision which is why it is so important to talk about not just how we're spending the money, but who's spending the money and the experiences that they're bringing into that process. Well, now that we covered a glossary of terms, <laughs> let's get to the conversation with Danielle Butterfield. Ready? Yeah. Am I good? Are we good to go? Amanda, you kick us off. Okay. Danielle Butterfield. Danielle Butterfield. <laughs> I've known you for a decade. Danielle Butterfield, welcome to Battleground. <laughs> What did you say? Buttfield? Danielle Battlefield. Welcome to the new battlefield. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Danielle Butterfield, welcome to Battleground. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, Danielle. Let's start with a little bit of introduction. Why don't you tell us how you got into politics? Oh, boy. Um, I got into politics. It's like a personal story, I would say. My dad ended up getting diagnosed with pancreatic cancer two weeks before I got to college. And he was like, somewhat political. And I think um, it made me pay closer attention to the healthcare fight, frankly, because he was dealing with healthcare battles while the Democratic primary candidates were talking about how we should be improving our healthcare system in the country. And so when I got to college, I ended up changing my major on the first day to political science um, and just got super involved in college Democrats. And then my hobby kind of slowly turned into a career. So flash forward to today, I am still working in politics and lack a a good set of hobbies, I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) You are the executive director of Priorities USA, which is one of the, if not the biggest Democratic super PAC. 
For those who are not familiar, what's the the TLDR on priorities? So priorities was founded to be the presidential focused super PAC. There are other super PACs that exist to kind of focus on different levels of the ballot, on different issues. We were founded to help boost Barack Obama's campaign in 2012. So we participated in 2012 and then again in 2016. But then after 2016, there was a really stark difference between how much Democrats and Republicans were spending on digital And so Priorities kept its doors open after the 2016 cycle to kind of play a role advocating for and trying to better understand why Democrats weren't making investments in digital. And so that is really the role that we have played since 2016, participating in down-ballot elections. And in the 2020 election, we kind of resumed our role as the quote-unquote presidential super PAC where we expanded to do television as well as digital. And it's important to me that we are clear that in the 2022 cycle, we will be exclusively focused on digital ads. We won't be doing any television, Hmm. unless that television ad happens to run on someplace like Hulu or Roku. You're not running TV ads in 2022. It's kind of a hot take. That's a controversial decision. How did you guys land on that? There's just enough television happening um, (laughs) that campaigns also get better rates on television, right? There is enough spending happening on television and there is not enough spending happening on digital. And I think there's a lot more room for us to play a leadership role when it comes to how to not only run digital, but how to run digital in 2021, right? Digital is just, it's such a fast evolving landscape. And especially now, like the privacy changes that are coming, we need to be talking about them more because it's really going to change the game as far as how we can target, how we can measure our ad programs. And so um, it could change like down the line if we decide that that isn't the case. Um, It just doesn't seem like that will be necessary for us to do. Danielle, uh, on this point, can you give us your take on the effectiveness or the differences between television spending and digital spending, and I guess what you would recommend (laughs) to various campaigns who are thinking about where their dollars can be most spent efficiently? Answering this question in 2021 is different than answering it in 2010, is different than answering it in 2012, because I think you have to pay really close attention to where people are spending their time. That's like rule number one, I would say. And if you look at the amount of time people are spending on the internet, it increases every single day. In 2018, on average, people were spending half of their time online and half their time on television. That is not the case now. People are spending a lot more time online. That obviously like had a, a pretty big increase during the pandemic, but I, I expect that trend to continue. And sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I feel that's across all people, all ages, all demographics, all breakdowns. Yeah. One of my favorite experiments that we ran in 2018 when I got to Priorities is I wanted to prove that everyone was online because I feel like the number one thing that I kept getting told when I was like working on campaigns was like, oh, well, we'll use digital to reach young people. And I was like, no, we have data. Every single type of voter is reachable online. Yeah, there's a difference between how much time people are spending online, but whether you're 85 years old and scrolling Instagram or 17 and on TikTok, like everyone is reachable in some way, shape or form online. And I think that's just important to keep saying saying out loud. Whereas, to get back to your question, Faz, that is not true for television, right? Every single type of voter is not reachable on television. It's an inefficient medium, both geographically in terms of like where congressional districts are drawn and how you have to buy television to reach people. Like, whereas like if I'm going to turn on Hulu in the next room, you're going to target me based on the fact that I'm in this zip code and in a city where a lot of young people live. So, It's inefficient geographically. It's inefficient based on the fact that people are cutting the cord. I don't want to like come across as a TV hater though, because I think it's really important to name that like we are, we're making the decision to spend more online because we think it's more efficient 
in a lot of ways. But that doesn't mean that television isn't efficient. It's just what we think that needs to be more balanced. And we think that that's what's missing. It feels like a pretty obvious decision point. Like, clearly, we should be spending more online. Like, any person who goes throughout their day scrolling through their phone or uh, yeah. reading the news online, it like, feels very obvious. Why is this a controversial take or kind of a developing controversial take? I think it's two things. One, I think spending online is actually a lot harder to do than spending on television. It mm-hmm. takes a lot more planning time. And even just last year when I was working on production timelines for television versus digital, it's just a lot easier to cut a 30 and ship it and to know that that's just the one ad that you're going to be making versus thinking through all the different steps in a digital campaign, whether it's having the right disclaimer and the right size and knowing what's going to run on Facebook versus what's going to run on Snapchat. Like there's just a lot more nuance to it. There's a lot more details and it takes a lot more to get it right. And I think that's a blessing and a curse when it comes to digital, right? Like there is a heavier lift to get someone to stop and pay attention to an Instagram ad than to get someone who's already sitting down to watch a full episode of Grey's Anatomy to watch the 30-second ad that you're about to show them. The second reason I think that people spend more on television than I think they should is that there is a desire in the political world to match your opponent's spending point for point. Whether or not we think there's viability in that argument, I think that is a a culture that exists. And one of the things that we're going to be working on this cycle to kind of combat that working principle is to make sure that if we're going to have really solid television competitive data to understand what our opponents are doing on TV, we need to have the same for digital. And we think that'll help get campaigns to, to kind of take that same point for point principle and apply it to digital. So we did some of that in last cycle at the presidential level. Um, I think one of the things that was really important for us to do with that competitive tracking was to understand not just kind of what was happening at the national scale, but to understand what kind of advertising is happening online. Because the Democrats are spending a ton of money on fundraising ads. Like, obviously, we know, like, grassroots fundraising is how Democrats are able to get ahead and stay ahead. But it's really important to understand the goal of an ad campaign when you're trying to equate, like, whether or not you should be matching someone's dollars. And so understanding if something we think is a persuasion ad or a mobilization ad, how is it geographically targeted? What is it trying to do? And in the the current media environment, you tend to get more in media if you do a TV ad than if you do a digital Mm -hmm. ad, which sometimes affects people's choices. I I was wondering, Danielle, if you had some thoughts on how Republicans spend. Any things that we can learn basically from this last cycle? It seems to me, appears to me that they are better spenders on the digital platforms. Obviously, Trump got a lot of attention for YouTube uh, purchases and a whole bunch of digital campaigning on his part, uh, which was yeah. core to his strategy. Any observations and takeaways from Republican spending? Yeah, a lot. So I think one of the things that Republicans do well is they have an easier time taking advantage of what already exists on the internet. We talk a lot about how Republican content is divisive and the algorithm eats it up. I wouldn't necessarily give them credit for like that being a strategy, Um, Mm -hmm. but the content that they run often gets cheaper rates because it gets shared more often. Does that make them good at digital? I think some would argue yes. I would argue they they, just have a structural advantage. Well, they built the Um, whole like ecosystem. I mean, if you you look at from Ben Shapiro's stuff to PragerU to Mm -hmm. Fox News Online, I mean, they're very powerful forces on Facebook, YouTube, and therefore you've really kind of built audience already. So when you spend, you're reaching in a magnified way in ways that the left, I don't think, has corollaries to the impact influence of those kinds of outlets. Sure. They 100% have an advantage when it comes to, to earned media and the infrastructure that they have built up over the last several years. I think my reaction to your question on like their paid strategy 
here and now and like how Trump invested his dollars, the way advertising works online is set up to benefit corporate advertisers that are trying to sell you products. And so anytime you're an advertiser coming in that's going to try to get you to click on something and buy something and put something in your cart, there's going to be a ton of advertising products out there that help you do that. And I think when it comes to like persuasion-oriented advertising, where you're really trying to change someone's mind or get them to think about a new idea, we consider that branding advertising in, in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. There is less room to do that well in our current advertising ecosystem. And and frankly, that's going to get even harder when the privacy changes roll out. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to measure whether or not an ad you're running is changing someone's mind. Trump's campaign and Republicans, they essentially figured out how to use conversion-based advertising to grow their base and to use a lot of look-like modeling and, and targeting and get people to buy MAGA hats. I think they just had a very different approach than we have traditionally had in the past. I wouldn't necessarily call it better or worse. Can I blend this with your political take uh, very briefly on the last election cycle? We see Trump lose. Great. We win a couple of special election seats in Georgia, which is great. But I think it obfuscated a little bit of the Democrats' weakness and problem. We lose House seats. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess I wonder what happened in this last election cycle. Why didn't Democrats have the kind of gigantic blue wave that many people were hoping and some expecting, right? That, oh, Texas is going to go blue and a lot, we're going to have these massive switches. Donald Trump so hated, he will not do well. And yet he gains votes. I guess, what's your take on what happened this last cycle? Yeah. My take on what happened last cycle is such a such a big question. I don't think I, we've reckoned with it, though. You know, I, no. I think we kind of moved on to say, oh, OK, well, we got the presidency, we got the Senate. Great. Let's go govern yeah. and legislate. And I'm like, well, let's take a moment. And so what, yeah. happened, what just happened here? Totally. Would you agree that generally Republicans overperformed the, the expectations? Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I agree with you that we failed to reckon and there's a lot of room for us to improve across the board particularly on investments in digital. Like, I'm just going to say that again, because I think we still are spending way too much on television and we need to be moving that online. Anyway, I'm just going to say that as many times as I can. (laughs) But I would say, yes, they overperformed. They obviously ran a a robust mobilization program. I would say the number one issue that we have is that our perception of what it means to be a persuasion target is off on the Democratic side. We assume that persuasion targets live in the suburbs and they're all middle-aged white ladies. And that is just not the case. There was room to to improve our support amongst different voters this cycle. And the hardest program that we had to fundraise for last cycle was our Black Persuasion Program. We couldn't get donors to believe that we had a problem when it came to Black voters and that they needed to be persuaded and not just sent a look up your polling place ad in the last two weeks of the election. We needed to convince them that Biden was going to fight for them and that Trump was dangerous. And One of the programs that we are running at Priorities in 2022 is what we're calling our new Biden voter program. It's the people that showed up for the first time in 2020, and we're treating them as a retention audience. We're treating them as people that they're new customers, and we need to get them to show up again and become repeat customers. It's a pretty simple marketing challenge. That's why I'm really excited about it, because I think anytime we can compare ourselves to a corporate advertiser, there's always going to be more tools in our toolbox in order to be successful. But another Um, way of saying what you just stated, which is kind of the more mind-blowing element is <laughs> Donald Trump is doing better with black people than we think, right? That, that's what you're saying. Because if you're going to say, hey, we need to go and seek these people, advertise to them, convert them and persuade them and mobilize them, 
the, the assumption there is being made that, hey, Donald Trump is performing better with these audience than we're giving credit for. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. And, and I, why is that? Do we know? I mean, I think it's because we go in with assumptions about these audiences without fully understanding what they care about. Like we go in and assume that just because you're a black voter that all of a sudden your number one issue is going to be criminal justice, whereas black people care about the economy just as much as other voters do. We don't spend enough time actually like investigating people of color like we do white voters. We do polls all the time where we over-index on college-educated white women under 30. We don't spend that much time investigating the nuance of how black voters or Latino voters separate themselves. Like We need to be doing as much segmentation amongst people of color as we do amongst white people. I think it's a research problem. Let's take a quick ad break, but when we get back, we'll be talking more with Danielle Butterfield from Priorities USA. And we're back with Danielle Butterfield. You have name-checked a couple different kinds of advertising programs, and I want to just make sure we're defining the terms for folks who might not be in the weeds here. You've name-checked fundraising programs, mobilization programs, persuasion programs. Can you articulate the difference and what that might look like in practice? So to me, advertising usually breaks down into two different types of goals. I'd say action-oriented campaigns are where you're asking someone to do something. You're asking them to call a member of Congress, sign up for a petition, make a donation. So those are conversion-based ad campaigns. And then you have non-conversion-based awareness campaigns where really ultimately you're trying to get someone to change their mind, think about a new issue, do something that they might not have otherwise done maybe in an offline setting, not necessarily in an online setting, like go vote or mail in their ballot. And so the way that those campaigns break down in politics, I would say like persuasion is often trying to get someone to think about a new issue, to think about something in a certain way. Mobilization, you're trying to get someone to turn out and vote. We use the term issue salience in a lot of our persuasion work, which is getting an issue to be more top of mind than it once was before. And that persuasion mindset, I think, is a really important one because we often think about persuasion as getting someone to change their mind. We use the term swing voter a lot. Um, I think that that reality, and Amanda, I feel like we've like had a conversation about this over text, mm-hmm. but like the reality of someone coming in and like flip-flopping day to day or being undecided in an election is actually probably less common than you would think. But I think the goal is if we can get someone to wake up in the morning on the election and have the number one thing in the top of their mind be healthcare costs, we know Democrats are going to do better. But if they wake up in the morning and are thinking about other things, we're going to do worse. And so our job is to make the issues where people align with us more salient. Can I pull you back to Trump for a moment? Oh, oh, do you and, have to? <laughs> and the Republicans, yes. We're going we're gonna to reckon with it for one more turn before we turn to 2022. Okay. So if I heard you correctly, why Republicans and Trump overperformed? That's the question I want to try to drive at. And I heard you talk about tactics a little bit on digital spends and digital strategy. I heard a little bit of a, a research on people of color and appeal of where he was, I guess, overperforming. Anything else to say about why Republicans overperform? But putting aside the gerrymandering problem, obviously, but I'm just curious, honestly, from your perspective, what happens there? Why are they winning new voters, persuading more voters? What's growing there for them? I think my number one answer to this question is just that the media landscape advantage that they have is, I don't want to say insurmountable, but it is certainly one of our biggest challenges. The singular force that they have communicating fake news and and disinformation to their voters that we have to overcome, it scares me a lot. 
as I know it scares a lot of Democrats. And I'm going to pivot to 2022 because I like to be forward looking. But um, I think the number one thing that we can do to respond to misinformation is I think you, you get a lot of pitches on the left about like, how do we track and monitor what's happening on the right and what they're saying and what's going to sink in and how do we combat that? I like to call it whack-a-mole because it's like picking and choosing what we're going to respond to and what we care about and, and what's sticking out. That is important and absolutely required. But I think the bigger challenge that we need to face is that if we can do more work to combat the fact vacuum in the first place and make sure people are getting credible news and credible information earlier in the election cycle, we will have an easier time down the line making a more concrete argument about why Democrats are actually going to deliver in order to earn their vote. But about, do you think persuasion, particularly of people who voted for Trump or voted for Republicans for the last yeah. two cycles, is even possible? Yes, I do think it's possible because I think the way we think about persuasion needs to adjust because I think right now, like a persuasion program that we are running is boosting credible news headlines to people that are watching Fox on a daily basis. That is persuasion, right? Supplementing someone's news diet with credible information so that they can be receptible to a stronger argument down the line. It's starting from a different standpoint, but I think it's important and it is doable to get people to think differently. We're just up against a really tough battle because of the news source advantage that they have. I I agree with a lot of the things that you said. I I will add more. Amanda knows where I'm coming from a little bit in the Mm -hmm. prior podcast, but my own sense of it, in addition to all the things that you say, um, Mm -hmm. is that we're suffering on an emotional valence problem. And what I mean by that is you see on the on the Republican side, passion for turning out around whatever they might want to discuss, immigration, critical race theory, whatever they can throw at their voters. There's a passion yeah. that we matched in the last cycle because of Trump. Yeah. And so now you head into 2022, and I am worried about where is this emotional valence issue on the Democratic side? Yeah. What's going to inspire people to jump out of their seats and go vote when Trump's not there? And also when you're depressed about well, voting rights changes, yeah. and we haven't been able to do enough on X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Is it sufficient enough that Biden is doing a good job managing this government? Democrats are putting you know vaccines into your arms and getting you know direct payments in your pockets. Great. Mm-hmm. Is that enough? And in my view, no. I, I haven't found that issue, and I'm continuing to search for it. But I think, from my perspective, you know, getting into some of these working class fights, animating the agenda, such that you know that there are corporate villains. That when you look at a, a working class person who you're trying to appeal to by saying, "Hey, Biden's doing all this anti-monopoly work. He's doing all this direct payments work." Well, yeah, there's friction there. Who are you going up against? Who's fighting you on that? So w- when people see that Biden is delivering for working class people, they should know. And he's taking on some freaking people to do it. He's taking on corporate actors. He's taking on Republican uh, senators, and he's doing it despite them. That's why you gotta you gotta go vote, and we need more of this. So, I mean, I, I'm playing with yeah. it, but I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that subject. Yeah, we have to give people a reason to vote, and we also have to give them a, a boogeyman and a reason to be afraid of Republicans coming back into power. I think one of the like interesting questions that we're trying to work through now, especially through the lens of new Biden voters, is how do we simultaneously make it clear to new voters that everything that's coming out of D.C. that's good is because they showed up for the first time and that they own that progress, they own those wins, and that we need them to show up again in order to double down. But what does the double down mean, first of all? And also, how do we square the fact that there is so much opposition? And like, how do we 
use that to our advantage and make it clear that Republicans are standing in the way and that there are a lot of kind of enemies out there without demotivating them? I think that's one of the the questions that we have that we're trying to seek to answer this summer. I do think one of the questions for 2022 that both parties really have to grapple with is what happens when Trump's not on the ballot? And we saw in 2018 when Trump's not on the ballot, a very different kind of Republican electorate shows up. Yeah. And I do think this is part of the reason why the Republican Party writ large is reorienting themselves around defund the police or superfund the police, uh, anti-trans stuff, the anti-critical race theory fights. Those become their new culture wars where Trump was the embodiment of all of the culture wars for the last four years. Right. When you think about new Biden voters and how much of their presence in 2020 was about anti-Trump response, how does that factor into the kind of content and creative you think about showing them? It's more split than you would think. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of these voters were not just showing up against Trump. They were also showing up because they believed in Biden and they believed in the potential to recover from the pandemic and that he was going to lead us out of it. But I think no matter what, it's our job to make it clear that even if Trump isn't on the ballot, his values are and what he stands for are. And that's just as scary as him being on the ballot. I think, Faz, that kind of gets at your question, too, of like, how do we paint that picture for folks? Well, I was going to say a conversation Faz and I have been having with a couple guests throughout the last few weeks is, how do you tie Biden to the Democratic Party's brand, even if Biden is not on the ballot in 2022? And what does the Democratic Party's brand writ large look like? Do we need one? Is it a slogan? Is it, you know, what's the bumper sticker? How do you encapsulate that, knowing how nationalized some of these fights have gotten? I think we need less of a brand because we're actually delivering for people, right? I think it's about Like people are literally getting checks in the mail starting next week that'll help families with kids get over the line that we've been struggling to cross for so long that I'm just not as convinced that we need some fancy Mm -hmm. slogan when we're actually just doing things that are going to help people. And the challenge will be about how do we make it clear to people that that's because of Biden and Democrats and that that vote was strictly on party lines and that Republicans are are standing in a way of all of the progress that we want to make and that Democratic policies are not scary. They're not like, I think we we throw around the term socialism, like, let's see what Democratic policies actually feel like. And then I think we'll be in a better situation. Mm -hmm. The White House calls it like shots in arms, money in pockets. But like, those are tangible things that are going to happen. And I think that we'll have an easier time selling it because it's it's just literally going to be real. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Danielle Butterfield. And we're back with Danielle Butterfield from Priorities USA. I think the the thing that I take away from a lot of what Donald Trump's brand successfully did is that guy wakes up swinging every freaking day. He's swinging at the postmaster generally, swinging at Fauci. Some of these are ridiculous, right? Like there's a reason why he's animating our side, but he's swinging. And when he's swinging, he's animating his agenda. Like I, I am going up against the world here. And it causes you to have to take a side, right? It's like, hey, yeah, that, that guy is fighting for me. He's fighting somebody every single day. And I just wonder, like, with Biden restoring normalcy, taking the temperature down, there is, I think, a danger of saying, who are the Democrats fighting for? And I, I wonder, like, what the voters think about that. And, and I think it starts to get at your question of what salience of these issues do people see in their minds when they say the words Democrat? Is it economic yeah. healthcare issues? Is it racial social justice issues, is it voting rights issues? What is it that they think the Democrats are fighting? Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I also think like my initial reaction is that Democrats 
care about so many different yeah. challenges that are in front of us Our that tent. we like when you ask mm-hmm. people what a Democrat stand for, there's a lot of answers. And I think that is a blessing and a curse in many ways. That, and that's why I just kind of want to know what they think we're fighting for. For, right. So yeah. it's not what you stand for. I mean, we could get kind of get the laundry rest, right? It's kind of like, who are you fighting? Like, you think the Democrats are in Washington, who are they fighting? And like, you presume that a lot of them would answer the Republicans, you know, that there's just kind of a, a gridlock here and a partisan gridlock. But I wonder if, you know, because what we're trying to do, the goal here, <laughs> I think, is to animate and elevate those economic core bread and butter issues such that people feel like, hey, yeah. I may disagree with them on some stuff, but man, they're delivering on the things that I really need for my life. And we're yeah. trying to move it up the chain. And that's why I'm saying you're picking the fights to try to move it up the chain. What, what Republicans yeah. are clearly doing is, hey, the wall, the border wall. Oh, man, that's the issue of the day. You know, everyone got to talk about the, the migration from Central America. If you look at Donald Trump's speech, the first three minutes was was that just fear mongering over race and immigration divides, and all this stuff. And so they, they're kind of trying to you know, divide, which is yeah. a classic Republican strategy. We're trying to unite around right. an economic agenda. So I wonder, you know, if, if it's elevating enough. I don't know. This is something Faz and I think have a little nuanced disagreement about. Yeah. Not that I don't think Democrats need to be fighting for something specific. I do. Obviously, I do think that there is some tension here between what we can fight for and what we can realistically deliver. And if you do not deliver in the way that you have promised to fight for, it becomes very demoralizing very quickly especially acknowledging how the diversity of our party and of our voters is a strength, I think, ultimately, but also makes it harder for us to unite. So often the fights become within the family as opposed to against the opposing tribe, which makes it really messy and almost immediately disappointing for people yeah. who start to pay attention. And I think that's, you know, there was some talk about this in 2012 a little bit and a little bit more in 2016 of like new Obama voters who were inspired and then disappointed and I, I think there's something to that. And I don't have a good answer for it, um, except yeah. to try and find a, the, the right landing place between promising the impossible and delivering reality. Yeah. But th- this um, is the challenge. I mean, I think, each, did each of you work for Hillary? Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we did. So, so this, and then, and obviously, I've come from a Bernie <laughs> perspective here on some of this. Not to say that they're all in contrast or a collision course. There's common course. ground. There's common ground. Plenty <laughs> of common ground. But I. I I'd say, you know, speaking for uh, why why I was for Bernie, why I mm-hmm. like the agenda, why I would be with him again, is that what he spoke to is a class issue in America. Not to say she didn't, but there's a class mm-hmm. divide in fighting for working class people who, by and large, feel a justified grievance mm-hmm. and anger about having been screwed, right? And the danger of saying, hey, you know, like, we're going to be very rational about this. There's certain things we can do and certain things we can't do. And this is how government needs to run. This, the, this is what we can accomplish. And we try to be very tried and true about the promises that I make. There's a value to that because you're, there's a large amount of Democratic voters, as you all know, who are college educated. They are smart. They are rational. They are thoughtful thinkers. That's great. Then there are some people, just quite frankly, there's emotional struggle around being screwed in the working class of America. And that is what, when I think about what the Democratic challenge is, talking to non-college educated, which are, by the way, two-thirds of the workforce out there, mm-hmm. and saying that we under both understand you on a values basis, right? We know what you're going through. And that's why I think so much about the fight that speaks to them 
while maintaining everything that Mando was saying, keeping that the base around the thoughtful, educated agenda that speaks to rational thinkers who are saying, oh, yeah, Biden's delivering on the promises that he made. Well, and I think the best messenger for these fights, and part of this is an occupational hazard, but the best messenger for these fights has to be local, because the reality is that Congress can't really deliver a lot of the things they're promising, but city councilors, school board members, mayors, county executives, sheriffs, DAs, they can, and people can feel it. You know, And we talk in broad strokes about the ways that Democrats should message and how we should campaign, but I do think it's worth being distinctive between those multiple levels of people who can deliver results and people who end up wasting a lot of time writing bills that become press releases in Congress. So it's it's tricky, like most things. <laughs> One of the things that's like tangentially related to this is I think we need to do a better job of listening to what voters are telling us they care about to bring it back to advertising campaigns. We like to put voters in buckets, how we perceive them in D.C., mm-hmm. and I think that is incredibly dangerous in many ways. So I think one of the small ways that we combat this and the, the way we run our digital programs is we. I really like to run Google search ads where you bid on keywords that are far removed from someone's thinking about politics but are tangentially related to politics, like how to pay down credit card debt, how to Mm. apply for unemployment, how to get my Medicare benefits. Those are all keyword searches that have a ton of volume. I think when I was growing up as like a baby digital ad strategist, I would bid on keywords like Mitt Romney's healthcare plan. It's like (laughs) no one's Googling that. Like no one's thinking about Mitt Romney's healthcare plan on a day-to-day basis, but they are thinking about how to pay for childcare. And so one of our like core campaigns and like this cycle, I really want to expand this to YouTube as well, not just search, but um, bidding on keywords based on what people are actually interested in and then tying it back to how Democrats are going to deliver and doing that in a way that is really kind of voter first targeting and someone searching for childcare, we're not asking them if they're a Democrat or a Republican. We're just, we know that that's something that's on their mind and it's a good entry point. So I think there's like more creative ways that we can be thinking about addressing these challenges too, with the way we run our communications. That's super smart. Yeah, that's great. And especially at a time when Biden will have knock on wood uh, delivered on a lot of these component pieces if we pass a reconciliation bill, you could search for a lot yeah. of different things. Eviction, you could search for childcare, you have, uh, hunger in America, or feeding your children, mm-hmm. uh, s- summer schools. Like the, all of those things yeah. will have answers in which Democrats have delivered for you. Yeah, absolutely. That level of thinking requires creativity with how you're thinking about communicating that I think we are not currently super great at. I think especially with privacy changes, we are not going to be able to really target people one-to-one. I'm not that worried about it because I think it'll push us to be more creative with how we think about defining our audiences such that we're really forced to like put ourselves in the shoes of voters in order to reach them, which I think it'll be a great challenge for us. Well, Danielle Butterfield, Executive Director of Priorities USA, thank you for joining us on Battleground. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate the positive energy that you brought oh, to good. us. <laughs> Thanks so much to Danielle Butterfield for joining us on this week's Battleground. Thanks to everyone who sent in messages and ideas for the show so far. And in particular, if anything from this conversation inspired a question for you or something you want us to get even more in the weeds about, we would love to hear from you. You can call and leave us a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 